Welcome to ATL in 29, the podcast that looks at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. Today we're going to talk Brooklyn Nets with Sandy Mui. She's a writer for the Brooklyn Game and an assignment editor at brooklyn.com. How is the Brooklyn fan base? You know, it seems like, you know, because they moved, you know, because they're in New York where the Knicks have like such a long tradition and Brooklyn's kind of the new team. You know, how would you describe the the fan base surrounding the Nets? I would say a significant amount of the fan base that I know is actually from New York like me. Okay. So they're pretty familiar with the history of the team. And then there's a smaller portion that at least I'm familiar with who are, you know, Brooklyn born and raised and aren't that familiar with the New Jersey side of the team. But I feel like maybe it's the New York Brooklyn culture too, that they're just so passionate as sports fans that you don't really think about whether or not these fans were here for God knows how long. Excellent. Yeah, I remember, you know, when the team was, when the team was in New Jersey, you know, one of the, one of the Hawks from the 1980s is Kevin Willis. I interviewed him one time and he's like, yeah, you know, I've always been really into fashion. So, when we would go to New Jersey, we'd have shoot around in the morning and the game at night, but you'd have the afternoon to yourself. He's like, I would, you know, get in a rental car and go into New York and buy fabric for the afternoon <laughs> and then come back out to New Jersey for the games. He's like, you, you didn't need like, like afternoon pregame nap. He's like, no, you know, we didn't get to New York enough. And that was the best pace to buy fabric. And he's still really into like clothing and making clothes and stuff. And, you know, he has a shop here in Atlanta where, you know, they sell clothes and stuff. And that, I guess that was his passion when he was a basketball player. I always thought that was funny. That was a story that stuck with me. But, yeah, moving on to the Nets. You know, we, we mentioned Kenny Atkinson earlier. You know, what is he like as a coach? I know we had him here as an assistant coach, but I think you you get a better feel for someone's personality when they – are the head coach and they're making the decisions and they're the ones doing interviews. What's he like? It's weird. I feel like Kenny Atkinson gets a lot of his personality from Mike Budenholzer. I know in the first game that the Nets had against the Hawks, I tweeted out like a bunch of pictures that paired facial expressions of Atkinson and Budenholzer together. Really? That look really similar. Oh, I didn't have to and, find that through some Google. <laughs> Yeah, I just thought that was hilarious. I was like, <laughs> I know Kenny definitely gets like a lot of his uh, character, I would say, from Budenhoser. And you mentioned this to me before we we started recording that the playing styles of the two teams are very similar. And I feel like that gave the Hawks an advantage last night, ironically. Maybe they just knew like the system of the Nets better after one game into the season. I feel like Atkinson really motivates his team to do well, though, even though they're so, they're like struggling with all these injuries, they're really battered, and they just still go hard, uh, go hard every night, and that has a lot to do with the culture that of this team and what Atkinson's trying to instill in his players to accomplish, because there's no point in tanking, so why should the Nets do that? Right. Yeah, it's such a unique situation that, you know, they have this team that's sort of been dismantled, but at the same time, you know, they don't have any incentive for draft picks because they don't have their own draft picks. 
you know, how has he done? Do you think that he's making progress with the team? And, and, you know, how has he dealt with challenges like, you know, being a point guard's coach but not having his point guard two years in a row? You know, it it is tough for him. I got to commend him for trying to work, you know, make the best of what he has to work with. And it's really a learning curve with him. I suppose, you know, there's a lot of new faces on the team this season, and last season was his first year in Brooklyn as a head coach. And last season also, there were a lot of veterans, point guard injuries. This season, not as many vets, but some more exciting players in Alan Crabb, D'Angelo Russell, and unfortunately injuries once again. Right. So with all these guys that Atkinson has to work with, I feel like there have been some questionable lineups players use or that, you know, this lineups that he's went with. There was the whole Zebico with Nets Twitter, I guess, when they were trying to advocate for Spencer Dinwiddie and D'Angelo Russell playing together. It took a while for Atkinson to try that out. And then unfortunately, Russell went down with that knee injury. He's already missed nine games. Then there's another aspect that I wanted to touch on with the guys that Atkinson has played or has okay. been playing. So there's the not-so-valuable players on the team, I suppose. There's Timothy Mozgov. It took Atkinson like four straight losses to finally take Mozgov out of the starting lineup. Like Who would have thought before the season Tyler Zeller would become Brooklyn's starting center? Never in my wildest dreams, if you ask me, during the summer. And it's crazy. Mozgov has completely fallen out of the Nets rotation. It's not a huge shocker. You know, you have a guy who was starting at center, but not really scoring all that much, not really rebounding either. In his 14 starts, he had 5 points and 4.4 rebounds per game, also 1.4 turnovers. So there's nothing stellar out of that stat line. So... Yeah. Uh, sorry, if, if sorry. I could interrupt. What? No, I'm just curious. You know, why do you think that that Zeller fits better than Mozgov? Is it passing or is it defense? But I don't think it's floor spacing, is it? Because really, I don't think either one is a shooter that scares you. But what do you think it is that that makes Zeller a better fit? I think Mozgov is just a much slower player. Okay, and just like doesn't move that much. Sure. <laughs> so is that? Do you think that's showing up more on defense, offense, both? Or which one? Which one do you think bothers Atkinson more to, to the point that you, you just you know you'd go to Zeller instead? I feel like it's probably more of the offense. Okay. Like we probably don't need a guy like Mozgov to score that much, but it it is troubling when I know there was one game I can't remember which one when Mozgov checked in and he completely missed a shot that should have been extremely easy for him. <laughs> I forgot which game that was, but it was it was like an air ball and. Oh. Everyone was like freaking out about it. <laughs> so, so what did you think about that game yesterday? And it's funny that you, you know, you mentioned the Budenholzer Atkinson thing. You know, normally I feel like when I watch a basketball game, I get a get a pulse on you know when there's a change in what's happening and you know why the change is happening. But I feel like these two teams are so closely constructed, and the two coaches know each other so well that when they make a change, it's something on a micro level, and I can't quite pick up on it. But what, what did you see in that first game in terms of strategy and you know what ended up helping the Hawks maybe and, and hurting the Nets in a game that Atlanta won? 
funny you bring up strategy because I feel like with these two guys being so familiar and close to each other that they joke around a lot. I know prior to the game, like right right before tip up, tip off, one of the Nets commentators was talking about how Atkinson said to Budenholzer that he would text him the Nets starting lineup tonight, and then Starek Kustak was like, "Oh, but then Budenholzer probably realizes it's an afternoon game." <laughs> <laughs> they just joke around a lot but with strategy I guess the Nets maybe underestimated the Hawks a lot right and I personally did too I thought it would be an easy win considering the Hawks were lacking three centers and you know you had Ersan Ilyasova starting at center right and it's interesting because the Nets three-point shooting is usually what saves them and I say that because they usually don't have the advantage in size. So that obviously wasn't the main issue on Saturday since they did shoot so well. They shot, you know, 17 of 42 from behind the arc. And that accounted for half of their made field goals, which is insane. Mm -hmm. So the problem they ran into was in terms of their extreme sloppiness. They had 19 turnovers and 12 of them were from Atlanta Steels, which I commend you guys for. That That is something that I did not expect to come from the Hawks. I probably should have dug more into the stats because I know the Hawks are very good in that category. But that was just a great win for you, for the uh, for the Hawks. Yeah, we spoke about it before the game, you know, before the podcast about, you know, the Hawks, their philosophy. It's, it's pretty extreme. I mean, they're pretty constant at trying to put a lot of bodies on the ball, whether it's, you know, out on the perimeter or once somebody drives, they're going to send a lot of help to the rim. And of course, you know, the cost for all of that is that they'll give up a lot of three pointers. They'll give up a lot of quality three pointers. And in the first half, the nets were making them. I think it was like 10 of 22 in the first half. And so it was a, it was a close game at halftime. I think, uh, but then, you know, the Hawks pulled away a little bit more in the second half when uh, the Nets cooled down a little bit from three-point range. And I think, you know, one of the things that the Hawks do well is they give up a lot of threes and they give up a lot of good threes. But I think they're also pretty good at figuring out, you know, who to cheat off of a little bit, who to leave open. And I think in the second half, they were leaving Damari Carroll open more than maybe some of the other players, you know, using his defender more of a help person sagging in a little bit. And I don't think he shot as well in the second half. I think it was like one of five from three in the second half. And that that kind of was the difference because if he'd made a couple of those shots, it was only a 12-point game. It, it could have been really close at the end if he'd made a couple of them. Yeah, and it wasn't really even the shooting that was the problem. It was just Atlanta taking advantage of a majority of its possessions especially off the Nets' turnovers, which, once again, I, I did not expect. Gotcha. All right, well, I said I was going to surprise you with a question. You ready for the surprise question? Sure. Okay, so the Nets have had a, you know, a couple of rough years because you know the team's been dismantled, but at the same time, they haven't really had control of their own draft picks, at least not any of the ones that were the good ones from the lottery. Mm-hmm. So suppose that Commissioner, I almost said Commissioner Stern, suppose that Commissioner Silver were to come up to you and say, you know what, we're, we're going to start the Brooklyn Nets all over again. 
Uh, we're going to give you three first-round picks next year. We're going to we're going to have an expansion draft. We'll get a few players that way. Mm. Uh, but we're blowing up this team as currently constructed. You get to keep one Brooklyn Net. Who huh. are you keeping and why? Oh, this is a hard one. <laughs> it's like I have three guys in mind. I got to narrow that down. <laughs> okay, you can go first, second, third, but. But yeah, give give us your uh, your number one at some point. Okay, I mean, I, can I just ramble about the three? <laughs> Absolutely, that's what podcasts are for, rambling. <laughs> so yeah, my my top two, and then like the third one because he's not been doing so well. My top two are Spencer Dinwiddie and Rondé House Jefferson, okay. just based on how well they've been doing this season. My third one, because I still describe him as a key franchise piece, would be Karis LeVert. I know he's not doing as well this season, but I don't think that's to say he's not going to evolve into this player that the Nets are going to hopefully see play one day in the playoffs. So with Dinwiddie and Hollis Jefferson, they're, of course, the two most impressive guys I've seen this season. Okay. And I personally don't mind Zinwitty starting alongside Russell, you know, once Russell returns. And as I mentioned, Levert's been struggling, so he's been out of the starting lineup. When the Nets aren't so injury-battered, so when Russell's back, it could be like Zinwitty, Russell, Crab, Carroll, and Zeller as a starting five with Trevor Booker moving back to the bench. And Zinwitty has really grown into a guy who can... I say score in a variety of ways. You have him drive for a layup. You could hit, have him hit a three, and when he's hot from behind the arc, it's extremely scary. You have him making plays too, since he is the point guard, sure. averaging six point two assists per game. So just an all-around impressive guy for the team this season. And there's nothing questionable about his future on the Nets. He's got a spot here, especially with Brooklyn's lack of point guards. Then there's Rondé Hollis Jefferson. We got to see him a bit against the Hawks. You know, it was his first game returning from his ankle injury. I don't know if this is a common thing with Nets fans, but I've seen it a lot. Like, a lot of people refer to Rondé as their son, (laughs) which I find hilarious. Like, it's weird. Okay. Yeah. He's been doing really well, though. So, you know, injuries aside, averaging 14 points through 19 games, and also he has 5.4 rebounds per game. And what's Interesting with Rondé is that for a poor free throw shooting team that he's on, it's like a known fact that Brooklyn is horrible from the free throw shot. I'm not really that bad against Atlanta, though, so I'll commend them for that. But but Rondé has really been one of the key guys who's been hitting his free throws. He's actually attempted the most free throws on the team this season. He's hitting them. He's hit um, 79 of 96 this season, so that's 82.3%. And that's the second best on the team out of players who've attempted at least 30 free throws or behind Alan Crabb, who's shot 30 of 36, and that's incredible. So the Yeah, last that's good because like in the actual game, he doesn't seem like that good a shooter, but maybe that's a sign that he can improve in that area because sometimes – you know, people like to use the free throw shooting as a indicator of how someone can grow into being a shooter in the game, and maybe he has that potential. Yeah, they use free throw shooting as like kind of a 
confidence, uh, what do you call it, like, um, confidence, like, marker, I guess. Okay. That's probably not the right word. Because, you know, it's, you're so close to the basket, you're not actually being guarded. And once you're able to start hitting those free throws, it might actually translate into boosting your confidence, and then Rondé will shoot a lot better from the field. I feel like he's actually done pretty well in that regard, too. So he's improving all around, just hasn't been on the floor lately because of his injury. Well, that's good, yeah, because you know he's such a good defensive player that if if he gets going offensively, he'll be he'll be something to watch. You mentioned Levert before. Do you have any particular feelings on why he has struggled? It's probably the opposite of Ronda. Like he just doesn't have that confidence. Okay. And I know a lot of people would say to me that Levert wasn't known to be a stellar shooter coming into the league, but it's, and that's, I guess it's because it was a small sample size to work with given all his injuries in college as well. But he just hasn't found that level of consistency on the nets. I know before Saturday's game against Atlanta, he was looking like he was on the, he was progressing upwards in shooting. And then he just kind of slipped back down against, Atlanta, so he's just teetering around a lot in terms of his shooting and hasn't shown the level of consistency that Nets are really desiring. And my long-term projection for him is that he will get there, though. He will turn into that franchise corner piece Nets fans are hoping to see out of him, and there's still time for him to learn because he's only 23, and it's his first full season since he started his rookie year recovering from all his foot surgeries. Right. Do you think that, you know, Levert's in his second season, he's still young, he's still trying to figure out his place in a complicated offense. Do you think that the absence of Jeremy Lin has hurt him in terms of figuring out the right role off the ball or something like that? I think that could be a factor, although is that, would that be like a Levert isolation Case and not like not isolation like the basketball boy. I mean, like in terms of just affecting Levert. Yeah, like with, just with because of his youth, and you know, he in Michigan. I don't watch enough college basketball to tell, but usually when there's somebody as talented as Levert, they have the ball in their hands in college, and then they have to adjust to come into the NBA. And if they're not the point guard, they often don't get the ball in their own hands as much, and they have to figure out how to play without the ball. And I thought that maybe, you know, the having the veteran point guard, you know, that could get you into the right spots, get you the ball in your comfort zone would be helpful. And then versus, you know, playing with some younger point guards, like at times, uh, you know, when you're playing with D'Angelo Russell, you, you're playing with a point guard who's trying to learn just as much as you are. I guess that could be a factor. And maybe the confidence thing again in him, maybe with without being under wins to the ledge, maybe he's also not taking the best shots. Right. Okay. So I know that, well, actually, before we completely leave the idea of, uh, <laughs> of this game, one of the things I thought the Hawks didn't do well was going small. And I don't know that they necessarily went small because they wanted to, but like you mentioned, the Hawks came into the game without three centers. They're without Muscala. They're without John Collins. And they're without Dwayne Dedman, who's been their starter for most of the year. So, you know, they have real problems in terms of uh, 
you know, finding enough size to put on the floor. And one thing that they've done all season long, uh, you know, earlier in the season when they thought it was their to their advantage, but now probably just as a means of getting by, is they've thrown Kent Bazemore in a little bit at power forward. And, you know, it, it, when he was in at power forward against the Nets in this game, they got slammed. You know, Brooklyn absolutely dominated the glass for those minutes when Bazemore was the power forward. Uh, and I think part of that is because, you know, he normally if you were going to put Bazemore at power forward, you'd want a real center next to him. Now they're basically putting their power forwards at center, putting Bazemore at power forward. And that works for a lot of things, but not for rebounding. Uh, but about a month ago, I asked Bazemore about being a power forward, and this is what he said. But it looked like you're out there in some of those lineups where it's Taylor and Schroeder and Delaney. Yeah. You're your nominal power forward. you got to kind of do power forward things yeah. on offense. Yeah. Um, is that tough? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's a learning curve, you know, um, especially when you start, you know, going up and down, and, you know, understanding where you're supposed to be, you know, you got to be conscious of where the other big is. So, um, you know, for me, it's helping me, you know, when I'm you know, playing the guard position or a coach has me at point guard, you know, my assist numbers have been up because I kind of understand where everyone's going to be. I, can, uh, I made some, you know, pretty decent strides in that department uh, as far as uh, my assist. And, you know, still have some games where I can you know, tighten it up with the turnovers. But uh, all in all, man, it's, you know, this is a, my six years been, I've learned the most I've learned since I've been playing basketball. It's been a lot thrown at me, but no, it's been a, a great challenge. Get well, man. Yeah, Thanks. Thank so, you know, we know that there are a lot of similarities between the two offenses. Those, you know, the, the offense of the Hawks and the offense of the Nets. The Hawks go small in search of offense a lot. Do the Nets do a lot of that going small with, say, maybe Booker at center? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of, of the Nets searching for things in small ball lineups? I mean, with you bringing up Booker at center, yeah, of course it has happened. It doesn't, it doesn't start out like that out of the get-go because they had Mozgov and now Zeller starting at center, but they would eventually opt for that kind of lineup. And it's... Hard to watch them get beaten on the glass a lot because of that. So as I mentioned earlier, it's usually their three-point shooting that saves them whenever they use kind of like the small ball-esque style of play because they have a lot of guys who can take and make threes, so they usually have that advantage in small ball. And then as I mentioned, the weakness is usually getting beaten on the glass and not having that advantage in size, which was not supposed to be an issue on Saturday against the Hawks with them missing three centers. But, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, just on a sort of a personal aesthetic note, the Nets shoot an awful lot of three-pointers. You know, there are a lot of games like Saturday's game where they're up above 40 three-point attempts. In fact, like we mentioned before, they made 17 out of 42 threes. Uh, Houston leads the league by a long stretch, but Brooklyn is second. Do you like watching that sort of basketball? I gotta admit, it is not a pretty thing to watch. <laughs> like, I guess most of the time, it's like just a random three that's being taken with 14 seconds left on the shot clock. I'm like, you, you, they don't always do that, and I do see a lot of pretty 
ball movement from them, but it's either when they're still, it's just like, it's like a random three at times, or they are forced to take it with the shot clock winding down. It's a lot more exciting, I would say, if they're on some kind of hot streak, then you could justify taking the random threes. And I know Spencer Dinwiddie has had some of those, Joe Harris, of course. So that's when the pretty, you know, appealing aesthetic part comes into play when they do take so many threes. I hear you. All right. So I know that there are a lot of Cavs fans around the league. You make it to three straight finals. And if you're not from Cleveland or from Cleveland at some point, you're, you might also be a fan of the Cavs uh, as a bandwagon fan, as we might say. So I know that the, a lot of, there are a lot of Cavs fans paying attention to the Nets because they own the rights to the Nets pick in next summer's draft. Um, if you had to pick a number, where do you think the Nets would slot in terms of draft odds for this next lottery? And also, you know, if you're going to say that they're, you know, going to beat five teams, you know, which, which five teams or however many you think there are, which teams do you think that the Nets are better than? I hope I don't sound too optimistic, but I have... Oh, I'll go for it. <laughs> yeah, but I have the Nets finishing as the seventh worst team in the league. So, yeah, that's that puts them better than six teams. Okay. Which, which include the Hawks. Ironically, I don't you know. They, they just they, they're ahead in the standings right now. You can't argue that. That is true. So there's the Hawks, the Bulls, Mavs, Kings, Suns, and Lakers. Oh, the Lakers. Wow. If there are Lakers fans listening, they're going to be upset. But I can well, see it. You know. They're going to be upset because they gave up D'Angelo Russell. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's a good one. All right. Yeah. All right. One more question. This is another fun one. And again, one that I'm surprising you with, you know, there was that, there was that, uh, event, maybe it was 15, 20 years ago where the Nets, when they were in New Jersey, almost changed their name to the Swamp Dragons. If is you had that? your pick between <laughs> Nets and Swamp Dragons, which one would you go with? Huh? It's weird because I've never considered them being anything that's not the Nets. <laughs> what, would, what would it be, like Brooklyn Swamp Dragons? Well, yeah, I think it would have been New Jersey Swamp Dragons. And, of course, the Swamp is in New Jersey. But, you know, sometimes those names stick after teams move, right? The, the Jazz were the New Orleans Jazz because that's where the jazz music was. Then they moved to Utah where there's no jazz music and they're still the Jazz. So, yeah, they, they could... They could be the Brooklyn Swamp Dragons, but have that name because they used to be in New Jersey. What do you think? I mean, if they were the Brooklyn Swamp Dragons, I anticipate them having a much cooler logo. So yeah, I would, I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> like we have the shield right now, and sometimes just the basketball-looking one at the alternate alternate logo. Right. So a dragon in like like holding a basketball or like a dragon in a circular logo. I think that would be pretty dope. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, you want to plug anything before we finish up? Hmm. Like anything I'm working on? You could plug a, a particular project or just give us the names of your sites one more time. Okay. So, once again, you can find me at brook-1.com. I'm the assignment editor there, and I also write for the Brooklyn game. That Those are my Ned stuff. 
You can also find me as an editor at Unbalanced and 16 Wins a Ring. And some cool projects I'm working on are actually sports related, but not really. They're like some feature pieces. I'm working on a piece about how sports journalists separate themselves as fans and objective journalists. So look out for that sometime in the coming months. Okay. And where can people find you on Twitter? Can Spell find it out me. so we get it really carefully so they find you exactly. You can find me at S-A-N-D-Y-S-M-U-I. My middle initial is S, but I only use it in my Twitter handle. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Sandy. I'm looking forward to tonight. Uh, tonight's, nope, it's tomorrow. But you're right. If people are listening, they're probably listening on Monday. And the game is tonight if you look at it from that point of view. So now that I've botched that, we'll just roll with it. Thanks once again, Sandy. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is fun. Excellent. Have a good one. You too.